Hey everyone, my name is Chris Price. Welcome back to another episode of Brass Bonanza, a Whalers podcast dedicated to keeping the memory of our favorite hockey team alive. This week's guest is Bruce Berlay, who covered the team from 1978 to 1984 for the Hartford Current. Bruce also worked for the Current from 1970 through 2008. But before we get to Bruce, I want to let you guys know today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. It's that time of year as college basketball takes center stage with the tournament finally upon us. If you're looking to wager this year, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your updated odds and info, along with great contests, including the bracket contest where you have a chance to take home the top prize. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAVE to get started. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. Bet Online, where the game starts. Now, let's welcome in Bruce Berlay. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me this week. I got a ton of questions as to what it was like covering the team the late 1970s through the early 1980s. First off, I want to start with when you were assigned to the Whalers beat, what sort of preconceived ideas came with covering the team? Was it seen as a destination spot for writers at the paper? Well, back in those days, the Whalers were the number one beat sports department. I mean, now it's the... uh... UConn basketball teams, mm-hmm. but back then, you know, it was the only, it was the only major league game in town and UConn was at a lower level and weren't winning national championships. So the Whalers were the thing. And, um, so it was, um, you know, they just, they came over from the WHA in 79. Thanks in large part to Howard Baldwin, uh, with three other teams. And so that was the thing, and they were selling games out, and you know it was obviously hard getting a ticket, and so um, unfortunately <laughs> they weren't. They started out okay. They made the playoffs the first year with Gordy Howe playing of all people, and uh, in fact they had a they could have put together a line of Bobby Hull, David Keon, and and Gordy Howe. That's maybe would have been one of the greatest and most notable lines of the history of hockey. Uh, but, you know, they were all at the end of their careers, but it was still cool to have them all on the team at the same time. And then they started going the doldrums in the early 80s and really hit rock bottom in 82, 83, when they finished 19, 54, and 7, a record I will never forget, uh, and finished tied for last place in the um, – in the entire league. And they actually got the number one draft pick because in the next to the last game of the season, they were playing Buffalo and the ref called a penalty shot on Buffalo with about 15 seconds to go in the game. And Blaine Stoughton, who had 56 goals scored to beat Buffalo and give them 45 points, I believe. And, uh, um, Scotty Bowman, the coach, as he was known to do, after the game, somebody asked Scotty, so um, what do you think about that penalty, uh, penalty call, a late shot call late in the game? And Scotty goes, well, at least we won't have to put up with that guy in the playoffs. <laughs> as Scotty could only tell you, getting right to the point. Uh, but as it turned out, they tied for first with um, Minnesota, I think it was. But Minnesota had fewer wins. So they got the number one overall pick and the Whalers wanted Brian Lawton, this high school kid star from Rhode Island, you know, to try and sell tickets and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, don't you know, Minnesota goes and takes him first. 
Well, you you would have thought Baldwin was going to have a coronary. So they ended up taking, um, I forget, I don't think that was the Turgeon year. Mm-hmm. It might have it. Yeah, it might have been when they took Sylvain Turgeon. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, what? Pat LaFontaine was still available. And so uh, but the Whalers took, I mean, and Emil Francis had come in. And to his credit, mm-hmm. he let Larry, he picked who Larry Plo, who was, he was replacing, wanted as the pick. Uh, the problem was it was the wrong pick. I mean, Turgeon was okay for a couple of years. And then he got hurt all, I mean, he got hurt all the time. And like a perpetual pulled grind muscle. And um, in fact, one year, believe it or not, in the seventh game of a series, he pulled the shoot, couldn't play. So that ended his time. But of course, after they picked Turgeon, um, Bill Torrey couldn't run to the podium quick enough to pick LaFontaine. And so we know what happened then. You know, LaFontaine, he's not in the Hall of Fame. He's close. I don't really remember. But, um, yeah, he would have been a nice little – he and uh, Ronnie Francis would have been a nice one-two center combine. That would have been a nice duo. That would have yeah, been awesome. Yeah, Ronnie one and LaFontaine two to start out. And then one night, and, uh, of course, you probably know uh, in Montreal and Quebec, they usually played nah, nah, hey, hey, goodbye at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, one night in the, in the Coliseum, Quebec – they played nah, nah, hey, hey, goodbye after the first period because <laughs> it was 6 nothing Quebec after the first period. So they didn't wait till the end because we already know what the final was going. And then can you imagine having to go to the locker room after that and walk in and there's poor Ronnie Francis, some 18-year-old kid, and, you know, this isn't the way. And then the other favorite was the night they were in Montreal. And, again, I'm on, you know, strict timetable. Well, it's 4-3 to three with, like, 10 minutes to go in the game. So I'm – you know, I'm right. You know, they played a pretty decent game and all that stuff. Well, then the next four minutes, and I believe it was eight seconds, the Montreal Canadiens scored seven goals. Seven goals in four minutes and eight, eight seconds. So the final was 11 to three. So it didn't look too good at the end. I mean, they were having, they were, I mean, you're talking about Guy Lafleur and Steve Shutt and Jacques Lemaire. In fact, one time, I think Steve Shutt and, and Guy Lafleur came in. The defenseman named Mickey Vulcan, he mm-hmm. like tripped on the blue line. And these two came in all alone on Greg Millen, the goalie for the Whalers, uh, who, by the way, they gave up 400 and 408 goals that season, which is hard to do in only 50 and only 80 games. It's more than five a game if you're keeping track. So, and, and so the, the goals were coming so fast. And of course, they're in French. And then they do English. Well, and I'm trying to rewrite. And I was, well, fortunately, I had a friend named Randy Smith, rest his soul. Mm-hmm. He's sitting next to me in the press box, and he's taking down the goals and assists for me because after about the third or fourth goal, I, I was I was buried. So at one point, when I think it was when Mickey Vulcan tripped to the blue line, he he like punches me in the in the shoulder, and he goes, "Stay awake, Millsy. Here they come again." <laughs> So it ended up being 11 to 3, and it wasn't a very good effort. And now, can you imagine going back on a plane after that? I mean, you just sit there in dead silence. And uh, although they ended up being so bad by the end of the year, they just had their couple beers and sandwiches or whatever and came on home. Who's your guy in the locker room that 1954 and seven year? Who's the first guy that you go to? 
to get the real story because I know as a working journalist, it can be a little difficult when you get to a point in the season where at least it looks like all hope is lost and no one really wants to talk. And you know, like you said, it, it can be a bit of a lost cause sometimes. But who is your guy or, or, or guys in the locker room that you would go to to get the real story? Well, believe it or not, as you probably know, hockey players are really good guys. And even if they stink, um, they'll generally give you a little bit of time. Uh, Russ Anderson was the captain. He actually lived in Glastonbury, where I live. And we used to ride to the airport together because Russ Anderson, Ray Newfeld, and Greg Adams all lived in Glastonbury, all within a couple of minutes of my house. So I'd jump in the car and we'd go out. I mean, I probably should have done it, but, you know, in those days, it wasn't like strict regulations or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Russ, and, and he was the captain. So he understood if they played good, fine. If they played lousy, he and, and of course, Ronnie, everybody knew Ronnie. So they wanted to hear from him. They had Mark Johnson. He was tremendous. Uh, Milsey, the goalie, we always call him the senator because he always had an excuse for something. Um, And then one of the guys who you end up listening, more listening to than talking to, was Chris Kasopoulos. He was a big defenseman, Greek defenseman. And he'd be after the, even before he got in the locker room, he was out of the, he was out of the locker room sitting in his private chair, sucking on a cigarette and complaining, hey, did you see my partner in that play? I was minus one, but I would have been even if it wasn't for him. I mean, I, I said, Kassi, you just lost seven to two. Who cares whether you're, what your plus minus was? You know, that's, that's the way Kassi was, you know? And then he ended up being a great guy. He's on Facebook and does a nice little write-ups on the Rangers. And I think he was... He was closer to the Rangers than he was even when he was with the, with the Whalers. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he was a character. And then um, those were the men. And then Gordy. I mean, you could, you know, talking to Gordy was <laughs> a couple of Gordy stories I, I probably shouldn't tell, but especially since he was a 52-year-old grandfather. But um, obviously him him getting to play with his two kids in the, um, in the NHL was pretty special. He only played one year, but he only had to score like 20 goals. And, and I, used to t- I used to tell him, I, I, I used to say, uh, Gordy, you and Sam Snead are the greatest freaks of nature in the history of sports. Because Sam Snead actually won a PGA Tour event. He was 52 years old. And Gordy Howe scored, uh, scored 20 goals when he was 52 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, so you didn't mess with Mark or Marty, uh, Marty or Mark, let me tell you, because Gordy still had the best elbows in the NHL, let me tell you. And uh, since I one night, some guy ran, ran Mark in the corner kind of early in the game. Well, usually, you know, guys might wait a few shifts or miss me the period or something to kind of retaliate. Well, the next time the guy got on the ice, left defenseman, Gordo did not wait. He hopped over the boards, and within 20 seconds, the guy was splattered into the far corner with a double elbow to the head. In this day and age, he would have been thrown out of the game, suspended for a month or whatever. The only good thing for the poor guy was the visit, the runway to the visit locker room was about 25 feet away. So they just kind of, you know, limped him down the edge and took him right to the locker room, never to be seen again that night. I can assure you. Did so, anyone ever take a run at Gordy? 
I, I hear all these stories from people who say, well, you know, Gordy was a guy who, you know, he, like you said, he had the sharp elbows. He wasn't afraid to mix it up. He wasn't afraid to kind of get after guys. One of the responses I got, I think from Billy Bennett said that, you know, no one wanted to be the guy who took Gordy out. So people were a little bit cautious around him. Yeah. Well, that's Davis's career. I mean, so suppose you're a 25 year old stuttering a tough guy. What are you going to go beat up on a 52 year old grandfather? You know, I, <laughs> Fair point. How about early in the year? I mean, early in his career, obviously. I mean, he got the terrible thing with, I think it was Lou Fontanello or something, Mm -hmm. where he took, like, he took and got a fight and had a metal plate put in his head and all this stuff. Oh, yeah, he was, I mean, there's a reason he got the most penalty minutes because he didn't, he, you know, and that's why, you know, he's in the top three of the greatest players of all time because he could do everything. With all due respect to Gretzky and Bobby Orr, they never fought. You know, like if they did, it was a pure mistake, you know, but Gordy scored, you know, scored, fought. Well, why do you think it's called a, a goal assist in a fight is a Gordy Howe hat trick? It isn't a Bobby Orr hat trick. It isn't a Wade Gretzky hat trick. It's a Gordy Howe hat trick. Uh, so that's why. But, you know, later on when you're when you get into your late 40s and 50s, they're not going to really mess with them unless he really did terrible. Down. I mean, they. <laughs> that was borderline when he did that night to that one guy, but you know, he had run his kid. So what do you expect the grandfather to do except stand up for his kid? That's fair. That's um, fair. And yeah. So, um, but no, Bill Ben, he, he, he was right. Uh, they didn't, um, they didn't, well, same with, um, not that David Keon never got in a fight. Bobby Hall never really got in a fight either, but you know, the older guys, they were, you know, they were respected for what they had accomplished and all that stuff. And, and uh, even Gordy was that way. I mean, they, they really didn't mess with him. Give me your feeling of the level of excitement around the team and around the league when the merger went through. I, I was talking to a lot of people who say that this was great because Hartford now had a big-time, big-four professional sports team. It was a big moment, not just for hockey in Connecticut, but, but for really for professional sports in Connecticut. Oh yeah, like I said, it was the number one. It was the number one sports team. Um, I mean, when the Whalers came to came to town, it was like, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the one year they made the playoffs and won a first round game, they had a parade. You mentioned have a parade for winning the first round, one round of the playoffs. I mean, that's what it meant to the town, and 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 everybody was behind them. That's why players love to play here, because it was a small town atmosphere. Everybody knew everybody. They were. You know, and the players participated in softball games and, and every little thing you can imagine for fun fundraisers. And uh, so that's why they became so endeared to everybody, you know? Um, and so it was huge here. I don't know. It, it wouldn't, and it was cool too, because you had the, the, the Bruins on one side and the Rangers on the other. So whenever those two teams came to town, they, they always sold out the building. In fact, the, um, when, the, when they played the Bruins, it'll, it'll be the last five rows would be all Bruins fans. Well, during the game, they'd be they'd be chanting about the Whalers. They play in a shopping mall, da, 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 da. and same with the Rangers. When the Rangers came in, there was all kinds of out of town um, out of town fans that came. So it was a huge deal uh, when they came here and and uh, had sellouts and. Uh, virtually all the time. 
We'll get back to our conversation with Bruce here in a second. But first, I want to let you guys know about Athletic Greens. Tons of people take multivitamins, but it's important to choose one that is top quality. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. Their special blend of ingredients supports gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's also lifestyle-friendly and fits a wide range of diets. There's only one gram of sugar and no chemicals or artificial anything. Reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash believe. That's B-L-E-A-V. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash believe. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. Now back to our conversation with Bruce Berlet. You were part of the, you, you were on the beat, and you, you mentioned him already a couple of times, but when Ronnie Francis showed up, I'm curious if there was a moment for you, whether it was a practice, whether it was a conversation, whether it was a game, whatever the case may be, where you knew that this kid was something special. Well, I would probably say the first time I ever talked to the kid, kid at the time, he was 18 years old. And having covered sports long enough, there's some guys who are 18 going on 12. And there's other kids who are 18 going on 25. Well, Ronnie was 18 going on 25. Because he was obviously well brought. I met his I met his parents, his brother, and all that stuff. And you know, you could just tell his upbringing and all that stuff. But and like even that night when I mentioned how they lost uh, whatever it was, the Quebec when they were losing six nothing after the first period. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still went to Ronnie and I, you know, you feel sorry for the kid because here he's a rookie and all that stuff, but he said, you know, we you know, we sucked, whatever the hell he said, you know, we didn't show up for the game because you'd always knew you'd get something worthwhile out of them. Um, so that started at the very beginning. I mean, um, there's a few, I, I, I covered a lot of college basketball and you have similar kids there, you know, they're freshmen or sophomores, but they, but they act like they're 25 years old and could be in the pros. So it, it was, yeah. And he was, you know, I mean, I, and I always said he scored the, I think it was 1700 points. He scored the quietest 1,700 points in the history of the NHL. I mean, when you think about it, I believe he's the second leading assist person in the history of the NHL, which is like mind-boggling, okay? And um, and that's only to the guy. This could be one of the greatest statistics in the history of sports, that if Wayne Gretzky never scored a goal, he had zero goals, He'd still be the all-time leading career scorer in the NHL. Really remarkable run for for Francis here in Hartford, as well as later, obviously, in his career in Pittsburgh and you know on on down the line. I, I'm I'm curious, as bad as those early seasons were, the 1954-7, you know, 81, 82, 83, they were also building towards something. Was there a sense at all? obviously Ronnie Francis was one of those main building blocks, but when you look at some of the other guys they acquired at that time, the, the Kevin Deneens, the, the Tippets, those type of guys, Mike Lee, yeah. obviously a little ways down the line. Could you sense that Emil Francis, Larry Plo, the rest of that front office, they were building towards something? Well, 
when Emil showed up, it changed everything. I mean, it was a 180 degree turn because she was a respected guy. I'd been around the NHL, you know, been in the league and, and built different teams. And, and when he came in, he brought half of the St. Louis Blues staff with him, you know, because he replaced Plozy. In fact, I'm not even sure Plozy stuck around. I think Jack Kelly stayed, or not Jack Kelly, uh, one of the scouts, I forget one of the head scouts, Bob Crocker. Yep. Uh, he was an old coach, I think, at BC. And yep. Crocker stuck around, I think. He was like a, he was a great secretary and he was a, he was a great guy to talk to. Oh, my God. Um, but uh, uh, Emil, Emil turned everything around because within two, three years at the most, they went from 1954 and seven to, um, to uh, the playoffs. But you know, he brought in Mike Zook and Mike Crombine and, you know, I mean, just checkers and all that stuff. It was boring hockey, you know, boring as hell to watch. But that's how they had to start. You know, they got Mike Leut, um, and, and, you know, so he built from the back out and, and he still had uh, Joel Quenville and a few other guys. So that's, that's how they really turned the corner. And, um, you know, like you said, they brought a tippet. Mark Johnson and uh, well Johnson was there, but Tippett and uh, Deneen was there. So they always had they had a nucleus of you know half a dozen, six, eight, ten, you know, good players, decent goalie, couple, you know, maybe two lines, and then um, a couple of defensemen. They always weak on defense, and so Amo built up the defense. That's how they turned the corner, and then I think it was '86, maybe is when they made the playoffs and they got the game seven against the Canadians and they went to game, yeah, game seven in the forum tied, went to overtime and they went on to win the Stanley cup. So that's and, and how was- close, that's how close they were to going from 1954 and seven to winning the Stanley cup, like three years later. And that was the year. And I've spoken to this with a couple of guys from that team where they believe that if they had knocked off the Canadians, that was the same year where the Flames had knocked off the Oilers and they dominated the Flames in the two games against them. There's a belief that the Whalers really could have gone deeper into that postseason if they had found a way to win that game seven. Oh, yeah. Well, that was generally considered the Stanley Cup finals because they thought they were the two best teams, actually. That the Whalers and the Canadians were actually the two best teams. And uh, so when they lost it, I think that was the famous 555 of overtime. The infamous Claude Lemieux put in a backhander past Mike Leut, one of the most notorious pains in the ass of the history of hockey. <laughs> of all the people to eliminate you in game seven, they couldn't have picked the worst. Of course, the Canadian fans mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah. The rest yeah. of hockey hated it. So, um, yeah, so that's how close they had gone or gotten in like three or four years. And then, you know, then they kind of just kind of stayed the same. That never got to that length mm-hmm. again. Um, they had a couple decent runs, but, um, and then of course they had that Carmanos come in and screw up everything by trying to, uh, want to get out of town. He didn't want to be there. Uh, Bruce, I I'm, I'm fascinated by this and, and I'm glad you bring this up because that leads me into my next question. And you as a, a longtime sports writer in Connecticut who covered both basketball and hockey can speak to this. One of the things that struck me when it came to the evolution of the Whalers franchise was they picked the worst possible time to sort of backslide into mediocrity because really in the, the early to mid nineties, it was Yukon basketball, both men's and women's were both right. on the ascent. Explain to someone who wasn't in Connecticut then just how dramatic the change was 
when the state really shifted its focus from hockey to basketball? Well, Jim Calhoun and Gino Aramma both came to Connecticut in 1986. And both the programs were kind of in the doldrums. In fact, I think the women had one winning season before Gino showed up. And by 1991, they were in the Final Four. And meanwhile, the men were building too, coming out of the Yankee Conference, getting in the Big East, both teams are in the Big East. And so that just catapulted them to near the top of the, I mean, one year the Big East had the th- three of the four finalists in the Final Four. I mean, that's never been done before. So everybody, you know, every game was sold out and all that stuff. And meanwhile, the Whalers were just kind of treading water and treading water. And uh, so they fell. And don't forget, the biggest sporting event in Connecticut is the Greater Hartford Open, Mm -hmm. now the Travelers Championship. I mean, that's the single biggest sporting event. Now, UConn basketball is bigger overall, but if there's one event, I mean, they generally get 200,000 people for a tournament every year, except when the COVID thing knocked them out. But but they get them, they're like the second biggest draw on all the PGA Tour. So they, um, they, the Whalers got displaced by UConn basketball, and it's been, you know, at the top of the heap. And the women have miraculously won 11 national championships, which is just outrageous. I mean, the only other school, you, the UCLA men won 11 national championships, but that's in Los Angeles. That's a far cry from Storrs, Connecticut. It's interesting, too, when you look at the history of UConn basketball and in, in this really in this instance, I'm speaking about the men and then you juxtapose it with what happened to the Whalers. You can draw a line between the trade of Ronnie Francis and the shot that Tate George hit to beat Clemson. And that's really the, the, the singular point on the timeline where you can say, look, UConn basketball, both men's and women's at that point were on the ascent. And then really Hartford Whalers hockey started to kind of fall off a little bit. Well, of course, the trade of Ron Francis, uh, Ulf Samuelson, and I think it was Grant Jennings mm-hmm. for the infamous Zarly Zalapsky, John Cullen, and a couple other no-names. Uh, John, unfortunately, John Cullen got cancer, so he couldn't be cut short. That was rated by many people as the worst trade in the history of the NHL. The worst. I saw a story once. Uh, they rated the 10 worst trades in the history of the NHL, and that was number one. Because, you know, because two years later, the Penguins, I mean, they had Lemieux and Yager and all them, but they, until they got Ronnie and Ophie, basically, and even Grant Jennings was a good, you know, sixth defenseman. They hadn't won anything. Well, all of a sudden, they went back-to-back Stanley Cups. You know, I mean, with with, with Lemieux and Francis as your number one and two centers and, and Yager and whatever on the wings, you know, it's just, that's a pretty good combo. So, yeah, that was, that was, um, death knell for the whalers as far as not death knell but interest really dropped there fans were so mad mm-hmm. when they traded um ronnie and Ulfie, especially i mean they were two of the most favorite players they were the best forward the best defenseman you know what how can you do that well because you're dumb you don't make stupid trades and that's the way the whalers up many times were unfortunately they were the old one step forward and two back uh, Francis got him out of that for a little while, but then Francis left, and who uh, I don't remember who was in charge then. But to trade those two guys, you know, I mean, unless you got Lemieux and Yager back, I mean, you would never do that. I mean, mm-hmm. but they did it. God bless Ronnie and Ulfie because 
you know, I was, I was, I was, and the, and the fans were really happy for them, but unfortunately they were left with scraps compared to those two guys. When you were on the beat, who was your favorite player to cover? Man, uh, I'd have to say a tie between 10 and 11 was Ronnie and Kevin. Those two guys were just, um, just unbelievable. Well, they were terrific players, but they did so much for the community and all this stuff. In fact, um, I'll tell you Kevin Deneen's story. When I was covering the team, my wife and daughter, Brooke, used to wait outside for when I finished interviewing. They'd say goodbye and go home, and I'd go up and write the story. So one night, Kevin scores a hat trick. So he's the last guy in the locker room, of course, and I'm walking out with him. So we walk out together, and um, he says, oh, he's just season my wife and daughter stand there. And, and he's, like I said, he scored a hat trick. So, and he says, so, so how'd you like the game? She says, oh, hat trick. You like the hat trick? He says, come here. He takes my daughter and walks her into the locker room to his stall and signs the stick that he scored his hat trick with. And presents it to her after the game because he knew that he was her favorite player. Now, how many guys would do that? I mean, really, he didn't have to do that. And Ronnie was, you know, he never did anything quite that much, but he was always, you know, there and saying hello. And uh, and then another time, Kevin had always asked because my daughter plays soccer. And so he says, well, she's when she plays. I said, well, usually on Saturday morning, she's, she's whatever. And, you know, well, well, let me know when she has a home game. So, so this particular Saturday morning, I said, she's there on this Saturday morning. Well, it's about 48 degrees and blowing on a Saturday morning. Okay, freezing cold. Well, guess who shows up at the game? Kevin Denny and his fiance. Both come to the game. And they stayed the entire game. And, they, and after the game, they waited, signed some autographs for the kids, and went home. Now, can you imagine, again, how many, how many athletes would come out in lousy weather to watch 12-year-old girls play soccer? Ron, Ron Francis was always clearly the face of the franchise. But if you oh, yeah, wanted, no, a, if, if you wanted and, and I guess it's a cliche to call him a heart and soul guy, but, but really, for me, Deneen was like the, the thinking man's hero when it came to hockey in Hartford. Well... It was Ronnie Francis, and Kevin was the heart and soul of the team. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie will tell you that. I mean, Ronnie was the face, and that's why they called him Ronnie Franchise. Plus, he was, you know, far and away points-wise and all that stuff. He was he was in another stratosphere. But Kevin, if you – and it was so appropriate that in the very last game they played at Civic Center, Kevin Deneen scored the winning goal. Two to one over, I believe it was Tampa Bay, but he got the he, he scored like early in the third period and it held up and they went two to one, and it couldn't have been because Ronnie was gone. But either one, of, but even it would have been more appropriate. Even Ronnie was there, it would have been more appropriate. Kevin scored, and so like there was a god, you know, after all the BS they had to go through. <laughs> Kevin Deneen scores the, la- the, scores the winning goal in the last game in Hartford. I, I won't ask you who your least favorite player to cover was, but I do want to <laughs> get your take on this quote from Peter Sidorkowitz. He was talking to me about the Whalers in the mid to late 1980s. Sometimes he said, you play with some assholes. We really didn't have that in Hartford. I, would, I wasn't around in the late 80s, but no, I, I would generally say, like I said earlier, 
hockey guys are probably the best guys to cover. I mean, I've covered every sport in the world for 52 years. And there is no, no sport in which people are more uh, willing to talk or to help out. Or I mean, golfers are, are similar, but golfers, are, you know, if they shoot 82, they don't really want to talk to you. Um, but the, the hockey guys were always there. They, I think, you know, a lot of small town guys from the middle of nowhere in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, or wherever, Flin Flan, Manitoba. And they were more than happy to, to accommodate you 99% of the time. No, the hockey guys were, were always, were always the best. And, and I mean, there was an occasional a-hole, uh, but I mean, few and far between, uh, hockey was by far the, the, the least, the least, and then golf was a close second. Bruce, just a couple of quick questions here before we wrap up. Why do you think this team, this franchise continues to resonate with people? Is it the logo? Is it the song? Is it just a sense of nostalgia for simpler times? Why do you think people still light up when you talk about the Whalers? All of the above. I mean, I mean, one of my best friends who was the PR director for the Whalers, George Ducharme, I want to put in a plug for him. He actually started the first professional uh, sports um, merchandise shop in the Hartford Civic Center. And he started a whaler shop. Of course, the, the, the whalers hockey people thought it was a waste of time. Well, everybody else started doing it. And George is also the guy who, he was at a party one night and he was in, it was in an adjacent room and in the other room they were playing some music. And somebody put on the, the Whalers theme song, Blast Bonanza. Just happened to go on in the room next to where the party was in. And he says, I love that thing. Next day he brings it into uh, Baldwin and Baldwin even kind of liked it. Jack Kelly and all, are you cut? We're going to play music to Blast Bonanza, the hockey game? Well, it's only the, the, hall, the song should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's I mean, it's played at Red Sox games. It's played all different places. Brass Bonanza's played, and so people are still in touch with Brass Bonanza and the logo. I believe a few years ago, four or five years ago, they did a survey of NHL merchandising. The Hartford Whalers were seventh in the league, and they weren't even in the league. Twenty years after they left. They still had the seventh highest merchandise sales of any team associated with the NHL, which again tells you, it's, so that's got to be more than just Hartford fans. It, it, like you said, the logo and all that kind of, and of course, Binghamton Whalers, if you turn it on the side, it's Binghamton Whalers. Which is brilliant, by the way. Well, was it that brilliant? Still one of my favorite logo tweaks of all time, where you just flip the, the the W and the H on its side, and all of a sudden it's B for the Binghamton Oilers. Right, and and I and I would be willing to wager George George Ducharme came up with that too. The guy was brilliant. I mean, he, he worked in government. He did some he did some uh, help run some governor uh, governors campaigns and all that. The guy is just he's really smart, and he was George, great. At George money. is one of the unsung heroes of New England professional sports. Oh. Without a doubt. He, one of, one a, of the most I, underrated I, I guys a, in the history of New England professional sports. Yeah. I did a huge story on him one time. And uh, in fact, it might've been the longest story I ever wrote because he had so much 
amazing. Even when I was covering the team and was around him all the time, I had no idea how much stuff that this guy had done politically and sports-wise and Binghamton. And it's just, I still see him occasionally. We try to, he's a little under the weather, so I can't go out. But we, we, we go out to lunch once in a while and all that stuff. And he still, he still has stories he hasn't told me. So, Bruce, let people know what you're doing these days. Uh, right now I'm retired. I've been retired since 2008. I do freelance work in golf. Uh, that was always been my number one beat. Uh, I covered my 50th Greater Hartford GHO Buick Championship, Travelers Championship last year. I had 50 in a row. So um, uh, that's mainly a thing. And then the Connecticut section PGA, which is the local pros, they I do some freelance. I cover maybe six or eight of their major events every year. And then if some ever, if so many interesting feature stuff comes by. Uh, so those are the main things I do. And then I, I write for a blog. Um, I do golf, uh, you know, 90, 90% of the time. Bruce, this is fantastic. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been a kick. I, I loved having you on here. And we got to we gotta do volume two again, maybe a little bit later on this year. I'll get a few more uh, Gordie Howe, Dave Keon, uh, Bobby Hull stories out of you. Sound good? Uh, I'll be happy to. Uh, I, I, I got some Gordie House stories I don't think I can tell you, but <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll give you a, 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 an alert and see if you see if I can say them or not. Well, how there. about how about this? We'll 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 rate the next podcast PG thirteen, and we'll go from oh, there. That sounds okay, good. Okay. Well, this this is closer to R. Let me tell you, <laughs> if not worse. We will hook it up later on this year because I want to make sure I get get each and every one of those stories. So thank you again for taking the time to do this. It really means a lot to me. Keeping the memory of the Hartford Whalers alive. My pleasure. Anytime, let me know. Sounds great. Thanks. 